Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy Inauguration Day to you, Ashley McKinless. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Uh, what a what a January this has been. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... It's been, 2021 is the, the, the month start keeps coming. What is it? The Smash Mouth, the, the month starts coming and it doesn't stop coming. It's what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But big, big day for Catholics. Yes, indeed. And we're going to get into that. But I, I feel like we should timestamp this because, yeah, no, we're generally in a pretty decent mood right now. But it, and it feels like the impending civil war has been staved off for the moment. But in the event mm-hmm. that it happens, uh, in the next two days, we're recording this on Wednesday at five o'clock Eastern time. So that's the to set yes. the scene. Um, and who are we talking to about the inauguration today, Ashley? We are talking to Father Matt Malone. He is the editor in chief of America. Uh, he's been on the show a couple times before, uh, but we wanted to talk to him because he's one, a student of history and the first Catholic president in particular, uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, but he's also has practical experience in uh, politics before entering the Jesuits. He um, worked on a couple campaigns, did some speech writing. Uh, so we wanted to pick his brain about what he thought about this uh, historic inauguration. He's also someone who has personally interviewed uh, President Biden. He sat down with President Biden for an interview with America in 2015. And so uh, Matt's really got some firsthand experience of our second mm-hmm. Catholic president. Um, that's coming up. Uh, and But Matt also recommended a drink for us today. So we took his cue on that. What are we drinking today, Ashley? Uh, a Cape Cotter, which is uh, vodka and cranberry juice. He didn't give us uh, more specific instructions than that. So I just... <laughs> kind of went for it in terms of the proportions. Yeah, so uh, I'm personally not a huge cranberry juice fan, but uh, when your boss orders something, you you get it done. So um, <laughs> cheers to uh, to a new president and to uh, a new episode. Yeah, cheers. But before we get to the rest of the show, we want to take a moment to let you know that Jesuitical is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I don't know about you, Zach, but I am still plowing through the course on the foundations of Western civilization. And, you know, I found it to be nice to (laughs) focus on what is uh, lasting in this moment of tumult. Yeah, it's it's really great. And, you know, years 
like this one times like these really make you feel like history has its eyes on us, right? Well, why not uh, put your eyes on history a little bit? And you can do that and so much more with The Great Courses Plus. Uh, Professor Robert Buckholtz teaches this course on the foundations of Western civilization. Uh, he also happens to be one of my former professors, my absolute favorite professor from my Jesuit education at Loyola Chicago. Um, he really makes the history of Western civilization super engaging. So if you had a crummy experience with history class in high school or college, you've really got to get in on this. And if you already have the foundations of Western civilization down, there are many other courses you can take, including in financial planning and how to make beer, how to play the guitar. Um, I saw one on sacred music that I thought looked really interesting as someone who needs to learn more about music. So whatever, whatever you're interested in, there is a course for you from The Great Courses Plus. Yeah. And to get access to these courses, this multitude of courses, they're giving a special offer for our listeners. So hit up thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical to get a whole entire month of unlimited access for free. No cost attached. So remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. Hit that so they know we sent you. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So obviously we're still in a pandemic right now, but there is a little bit of uh, good news this week. Last week, both Pope Francis and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI got the COVID-19 vaccine, the first dose anyway, and that's really good news. But also the Vatican began vaccinating residents of its homeless shelter. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I... Uh, had a sigh of relief when I learned Pope Francis had gotten the vaccine because as we've talked about on the show before, he has not always been that great about wearing a mask and keeping social distance. So I, I'm very reassured to know that he's at least got the first dose so far. And it's wonderful to hear that he's, you know, um, putting his words into action when he's said that we really need to prioritize uh, the marginalized and the poor in the way that we uh, roll out these vaccines. So they're putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, the residents at homeless shelters are getting vaccinated. Yeah. And there was also some pretty terrible news related to the coronavirus and the Catholic Church. There were nine bishops from three different continents uh, that all died from COVID-19 in the past week. Um, the youngest among them was 53, was a bishop from Zambia. Uh, and so, you know, the, the church has not been exempt from a lot of the suffering that the rest of the world is facing. And um, we just want to offer our prayers to the dioceses around the world that are suffering the loss of their the leader of their church in this moment. Yeah. And that brings us to our next story, which is, um, back in the United States, a lot of news uh, for Catholics, uh, including around coronavirus. On Tuesday night, Cardinal Wilton Gregory offered a prayer at the memorial service attended by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, um, marking the 400,000 people who have succumbed to COVID-19 in the U.S. Um, it's really, I don't know striking that it's taken our country this long to have some sort of national moment of mourning. Um, and and I thought the ceremony that they, they did on the National Mall last night was really, really beautiful and, you know, sad. Yeah, no, it's important. Uh, you know, we something we talk about is grief can feel like a very lonely thing. 
Um, and particularly right now when so much of our grieving has to be in private, right? Because we can't gather together in a lot of spaces and we will eventually, I think, but it's still important to try to come together in whatever way we can. And I was really, I was also really moved to see that, you know, reflected in the start of the inauguration day festivities on the eve of the inauguration day to kind of mark, you know, Mm -hmm. this is where we're at right now. There's still this thing happening. Yeah. And speaking of inauguration day, uh, Joseph Biden, our second Catholic president, kicked off the inauguration activities with mass at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And what I thought was a really uh, powerful gesture of the unity he's been calling for throughout his campaign, he invited congressional leaders from both sides of the aisle to attend the mass. So both Senator Mitch McConnell and uh, Representative Kevin McCarthy, who just two weeks ago voted uh, to not certify Biden's electoral victory, attended mass with him this morning. Yeah. And that was just the start of a pretty Catholic inauguration day. Uh, Anyone who was watching probably noticed that uh, beyond, you know, starting with mass and that was off camera, obviously there was the inauguration itself. Jesuit priest, Father Leo Vadonovan, who is the former president of Georgetown University and a friend of American media, um, he gave the inaugural invocation. Yes, he said, today we confess our past failures to live according to our vision of equality, inclusion, and freedom for all. Yet we resolutely commit, still more now, to renewing the vision, to caring for one another in word and deed, especially the least fortunate among us, and so becoming a light the world can look to. Yeah, it was a really beautiful prayer and we'll link, we've got the full text up at americamagazine.org. We'll be sure to link to it. Um, Leo was one of several Catholics that were involved in the inauguration day. It feels we'd be remiss to not mention Lady Gaga uh, right. <laughs> singing, singing the national anthem. But we did want to focus in in particular on Father Leo because he's someone who uh, I have a special affection for and I know you do as well, Ashley. Um, Leo, uh, when we when we were working in America at our old offices, uh, Father Leo lived in the Jesuit residence that was above the magazine. So he's someone that we are familiar with. And we thought we'd take a second to share uh, some of our favorite Leo Donovan stories uh, from our time telling him. Well, mine is it's not really a specific story, but I, you know, I started at America back in 2013. And at that point, there were not a lot of young people on staff um, and even if you define young as <laughs> under 40 or 50 years old. Um, so I felt, you know, kind of small and like you're in this very august environment with so much history. And yet Father Leo, who, you know, yeah, the former uh, president of Georgetown, uh, the friend of princes and princesses <laughs> throughout the Catholic world, um, made such an effort to get to know every single person on that staff, including me. Um, I didn't. I don't even know how he knew my name, but I just remember walking into the hallway one day outside of our editorial office, and he pops out of the elevator and was like, "Oh, Ashley, tell me about your day. How are you doing?" And I was, and you know, he was probably on on his way to like get lunch with the Prince of Spain. And he still took time to ask me how I was doing and how I was settling into my new job. So that's always just stuck with me. He's a he's a genuinely compassionate, caring, generous man. No, it's true. And my Leo story is also from my time starting in America. Uh, right after I got hired by America, I promptly then grew out a pretty impressive man bun, what I would call. Um, it was a very polarizing issue, but I had some, some long hair. <laughs> Um, I moved, just moved to Brooklyn. It was the thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And 
in 2016, my now wife had just moved to the city and I had a sense that the man bun was not going to cut it in terms of wooing her. So got that cut. And then I am, I show up to uh, a fundraiser for Commonweal magazine, uh, where I ran into father Leo Donovan. He, he looks at me, says, Zach looks, looks at my now newly cut hair, takes a, takes a moment of reflection and says, you look so promising. (laughs) (laughs) And here I am promised. Uh, Thank you, Leo. My wife thanks you for encouraging me and cutting my hair. Uh, So we're going to talk more about Leo and the inauguration coming up in our conversation with Father Matt Malone. So stick around. Joining us from America Media's headquarters in New York City is Father Matt Malone. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Father Malone. It's great to be back. You're you're up to three now. I always notice that some something really big has to happen for you all to invite me on this show. <laughs> I, I can think of no higher honor, in fact. Uh-huh. Yeah. Indeed. No, it's great to be with you. So we are recording this uh, the afternoon of... January 20th, Inauguration Day. So just a quick timestamp in case uh, history has changed since then. This is about four o'clock. We're talking about this. Um, Matt, wondering if you could offer some initial thoughts on on today's events. Well, I mean, I I think I probably felt a lot of the same feelings that other people had. This won't surprise anyone who's read our editorials or my column over the last couple of years. A sense of relief that... (laughs) We have a president with whom I have some, you know, serious disagreements yeah. with on policy, but is a is a decent human being and clearly cares a great deal about this country um, and respects its conventions and its constitution. But I'll also say that I was I was really surprised by the amount of religion in the whole episode. I mean, it was very liturgical, and the references mm-hmm. to um, to providence, to God, to this sense of purpose, the president quoting from Augustine, the 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 invocation that was given by my brother, Father Leo, um, and the, uh, the, the prayer at the end, they were deeply theological. I mean, and um, I think there were the invocations of the divine and of what I suppose we would loosely call civil religion in this inauguration more than I, I have seen in my lifetime. Would you say that he was successful in, you know, drawing on his own Catholic tradition and faith in a way that was unifying as opposed to alienating to people who don't share that faith? Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, because that Catholic faith has formed him and given him the ability to um, to empathize with people and their experiences. And for me, the most remarkable moment in this inaugural address, which you think of as really a very solemn occasion, and this is, you know, rhetoric in its highest form and so forth. And yet he he does this all, he speaks very colloquially, right? And uh, my favorite moment in this, uh, in, in the inaugural address was when he said, you know, listen, uh, I'm going to tell you something, you know, life is difficult and you never know what's going to happen, right? I'm paraphrasing him. But it was like, it was like your grandfather sitting you down <laughs> and saying, you know, but it it wasn't platitudinous, 
in the in the sense that you know it, it's just an, an empty gesture. Anyone who's watched the man over the last several years of his life uh, knows that he speaks that truth from his own lived experience, which has been a, uh, an amalgam of lights and shadows. The big theme of the day was unity, um, which ironically tends to be a somewhat polarizing topic. Um, even and someone reminded me that this was also the theme of Pope Francis, uh, his uh, Wednesday weekly audience too. He's talking about Christian unity, but the themes are similar. Uh, I was, I, I have to say, I'm, I, I find myself, I knew I would be challenged by that message, um, particularly after the last four years, after two Wednesdays ago, I believe, um, on January 6th. Um, unity can kind of feel a little bit, I don't know, naive, which I think, you know, president, the president acknowledged. I, I don't know how much of it is he, he rattled off all the times in America's history where we've been unified before. And it, it, it occurred to me that I haven't really been politically conscious or alive for any of them. Right. Even nine 11, I, I was, I was in elementary school. And so I don't know how much of that is just a like failure for me to be able to imagine that. Um, but I'm str- struggling to be able to identify that. But I say that because I want to, right? Because I, as Pope Francis reminds us, division is the work of the evil spirit. And I think it's alive and well in the country right now. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. I mean, it's interesting you should say that because I've often said to my younger friends um, over the last few years, I wish you had known the politics that I knew when I was in my 20s, right? Which was not perfect uh, by any means and um, had you know, it was very human, but it was not this. It was a very, it was, it was very different. And there weren't these um, deep divisions between groups. And, and there, there wasn't this sort of motive questioning among our political leaders and so forth. Um, and, and the, what's happened in the last four years was then inconceivable, right? Now, of course, maybe that's in part why it happened because it was inconceivable and we didn't, you know, think enough about it or, or plan enough for it. But this is the thing I always get, I get criticized for this in an ecclesial context all the time. Cause I, you know, at America, we have this thing where, you know, we, we really try to cultivate a diversity of voices and, you know, to, to that by having people who are Catholic, but who disagree with one another on important issues in a civil and respectful way, you, you know, you model the, the diversity in unity of the church. And people will frequently say, oh, well, this, isn't that just kind of paper-overing our differences or not? You know, these are important issues. And and, and the, my response to that is always, no, first of all, if, if you think that the summons to unity today or in, in my own modest world, the, the kind of unity we're trying to model here in America is naive, um, then just try the alternative, right? That's what we saw in the last uh, couple of months. What that unity does is it doesn't make those differences go away. Is it's it by reminding us of what our values are, either as a church or as a people, right? Um, by bringing into a kind of civil liturgy like today those moments, those historical references that even if you didn't live through them, um, you have some cultural awareness of. By bringing those symbols to in in into the experience, you remind people what they have in common. And the reason that's important is because it's really then what makes argument possible, 
right? You know, I always say in an ecclesial context, remembering that we are the body of Christ and that our unity resides in him and, and in our shared commitment and, and not in the agreement of our ideas um, is, is in fact what allows us to disagree with each other in freedom because then our, the, our differences, our arguments, they become a thorn in the side rather than a dagger in the heart. They can become a clear and present threat to an, our immediate reality, but not in this kind of existential sense. How do you see that translating to the political realm? I mean, we saw, I, you know, I was moved that Joe Biden invited Senator Mitch McConnell to come to mass with him today, this morning, um, and they kind of returned to the normal um, pomp and circumstance around the inauguration, exchanged gifts, made jokes with each other. Um, but do you have any insight about whether we're going to see that translate into action in Congress? No, I don't have a particular insight about that. But I, I do think <laughs> um, I mean, this is one of the things that's kind of interesting. It, this is also why everybody should watch C-SPAN, um, which is I think we were talking before we went on the air about like why I watch these things on C-SPAN. Because you see all this behind-the-scenes stuff instead of like just the talking heads. And you realize that these people who seem to be at each other's throats at this moment when they're just the two of them are not. And they, they appear to be having a kind of fundamentally human interaction. And I've discovered that in my own life. You know, I have people in my life who voted for President Trump, feel very, very strongly about what he was doing and their part in that and their view of the whole thing. But I would find almost to a person, whenever I spoke in this language, that Biden was speaking today, you know, that that resonated with people. Um, the, the, the real problem is it's very hard to get to that point because everybody has their own information channel. And the way that that plays out in our politics is they not only have their own information channel, um, but, you know, they're, they're, in, they're in highly partisan political um, divisions. And a lot of the procedural ways in which, you know, Congress has uh, traditionally forced people to work together are, are gone. But I think you have to believe that there, the will is there. That's what I'm saying. And in, in my interactions with other people, for the most part, now I'm talking about, I'm not talking about people who are insane, right? Uh, <laughs> but for the most part, I do find that willingness and that desire for there to be a a different way. I found that to be one of the more moving parts of the speech is when uh, Joe Biden quoted from President Abraham Lincoln's uh, was it speech at the Emancipation Proc Proclamation um, about, you know, his whole soul was in this. And when Joe Biden said, like, my whole soul is in this work of reconciliation in our country, I, I believed him, <laughs> um, even if it can feel naive to, to see politicians in that light. Yeah. Yeah. You know, today was significant for all of Americans, obviously, but also for Catholics in that it's the second Catholic ever elected to this office. And I, I was thinking about our uh, our forefathers at the magazine here. You know, when the first president, first Catholic president was running, they had to do the work of convincing the public that a, a Catholic could hold that office. And, you know, they wrote after he, he won, you know, that the question is settled. Um I think that's largely true, right? There, there was not that same issue this time mm -hmm. around. Um, I'm wondering if you could 
say a little bit, Matt, about what the temperature in American public life was for for Catholic politicians before JFK? Well, I think it was, I mean, Catholics had uh, amassed political power, particularly in the northern and eastern cities where, you know, you had these large ethnic Catholic populations that just through population growth had taken over uh, political control uh, of those places. So, you know, there were significant pockets of it. Um, But there was a... you know, uh, very serious anti-Catholic prejudice that that ran through the country and had run through the history of the country um, up until that point. And, and basically, it has to do with allegiances, right? So people felt and were told repeatedly over and over again, this business of lies, the power of lies again, which we were talking about, the president was talking about earlier today. People were told repeatedly, a Catholic can't be loyal to the United States because a Catholic is loyal to Rome. And they cannot divide their their loyalties up like that. And when push comes to shove, um, they will be loyal to Rome and not to Washington. And what follows from that is then they can't actually even be Americans, let alone be president, right? And so what happened? Um, you know, we we did nominate one of those big, you know, um, northern. Uh, politicians and the person of Al Smith, and he went down to a terrible defeat. And then there took hold in the conventional wisdom of our national politics that you couldn't be elected if you were a Catholic. Then along comes John Kennedy. Now, the curious thing about John Kennedy was he was an Irish Catholic from Boston, but in every other way, he was a wasp, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like he had, <laughs> you know, he came from a privileged background. His father was the one of the wealthiest people in the country. He was a graduate of Harvard University. He was an Anglophile. Um, he was the least threatening Irish Catholic in the country in that sense, right? Um, and and then what he did rather cleverly with that very expensive, uh, not for him, but for everybody else, education from Harvard, is he went down to Houston and, and he did something similar to what the president did today at, on the inaugural platform. He, re, he reminded these people who were critical of him and suspicious of his Catholicism of what they shared in common as Americans. And he said, those are the values by which I ought to be judged, my candidacy ought to be judged, and we ought to judge the progress of this country. Um, now, interestingly enough, at the end of the day, in the election, you know, John Kennedy said in that address in Houston, no one should vote for me because I'm a Catholic. But he never would have won if they had actually listened to him. Because um, what we learned in looking at the demographics of the 1960 presidential election was that the, the anti-Catholic animus in the country was deeper than people had thought, even deeper than people had thought. And, um, and John Kennedy narrowly won that election because African-Americans responding to his call to credit Scott King after Dr. King's arrest, um, which they viewed sympathetically, um, and, and Catholics came out in enormous numbers and put him over the top. Which is, by the way, I should just say, that is the story of the De- Democratic Party nationally since. They win when African-Americans come to their rescue. And that's what they did in this election. They did it in South Carolina, in the South Carolina primary with Biden. They did it in the general election. And then they did it in Georgia. You mentioned that Catholic politicians and public figures had to sort of, there was a question of whether or not they were real Americans pre-JFK. And I what I think is interesting now is that the discourse is, whether or not they're they're real Catholics, right? 
And I, I, when did that shift happen? Because I think there's a question of how is a how is a Catholic candidate in the context that we live and operate in supposed to to be a good enough American and a good enough Catholic to be able to satisfy both of those identities? When did that shift start to happen, and and why? Well, I mean, it's complicated, obviously, but I think it, it really started to happen in the late 60s and 70s. Um, and then, you know, by the time we got to the, the 1980s, working class, ethnic, Catholic Democrats, you know, who had been the backbone of the Democratic Party were, I, I think they were put off by the, what they perceived to be the extremism of the Democratic Party. It, it's, it's, it's going left, you know, which you reach, you see the kind of high watermark of um, the 72 campaign of George McGovern. And so, you know, people like, you know, John Boehner, who I profiled for America Magazine a couple of years ago, you know, he grew up, he said, when I was growing up, we were Kennedy Democrats. You know, when my, when my mother and father were growing up, they were, they were Kennedy Democrats. But by the time 1984 came around, they were all Republicans. But what they would say is the, the Democratic Party left me. I didn't leave it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and then you have this, amazing realignment that Reagan is able to affect by convincing that huge number of people that the the party, which had traditionally represented the Eastern establishment, was actually on the side of, uh, of working people. The more interesting point from my point of view is if you say you can't be an American because you are a Catholic or you cannot be a Catholic because you have this particular view of public policy as an American, they're, they're actually opposite sides of the very same coin. The whole problem is the question itself, right? <laughs> what does it mean to be an American? And what does it mean to be a Catholic, right? And I don't think that you could find anywhere in the Catholic social teaching, uh, in Catholic social teaching, or certainly you can't find it in the gospel, it says that you have to align with a certain set of public policy positions in a certain polity, in a certain political, social, temporal, spatial context in order to be a Catholic, right? That the whole problem is the framing of that. And we see it not just from people on the right who are concerned about questions of life, but I hear it too from, from people on the left who are like, no, you, got, you have to have this specific idea of, of how yeah. Catholic social teaching ought to be instantiated for economics, for example, or you're not a Catholic. Yeah, that is, I wanted to go into that. Um, sh- you know, should we want our Catholic politicians to, <laughs> to do what John F. Kennedy said he wouldn't do, which is take instructions from Rome? So uh, yeah, on either side, do you want a Supreme Court justice to follow their conscience on the death penalty, even if it goes against their interpretation of the Constitution? And do you want a Catholic president to, you know, stick to <laughs> their enumerated duties? And it's not insignificant because there are a lot of people that, I mean, not, uh, at least a significant amount of people that think the answer to that is yes. But also a lot of our listeners, they write in and tell us, right, that this is what they hear from from their own church leaders and their own local communities. And so what what you're saying right now, Matt, is really mm-hmm. radical for a lot of young people in particular who've been told something completely different th- their entire lives. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, and what's interesting is that this doesn't actually happen in other countries, right? In other words, 
in a, in a Catholic country, you don't ask yourself, what does it mean to be a Catholic? Because it's just part of the culture, right? It, whether you go to church or not, you know, it's just Catholicism is just a, a reality. And, you know, the whole, their whole understanding of the relationship between time and space is properly Catholic rather than Protestant. I mean, the, the, the dominant um, culture in this country is Protestant, certainly in our, in our political culture. And that's a, it's a very different, it's, it's a non-sacramental understanding of the relationship between time and space. So what that means basically is if you are in a, in one kind of Protestant worldview, which I think informs the political culture of the United States, if you, sh if you disagree with one another, you can't share space, right? That's how we got Rhode Island. <laughs> you know, these folks disagreed with each other about, about uh, what kind of polity they wanted to be, and so they went out and created another one. Now, I mean, the Pope, when he was in Buenos Aires, uh, he was serving under a junta. So from his point of view, the world, it can't be so neatly carved up, right? By by um, by time and space, but it should be it should be telling to Catholics. It should be telling to them that that the Catholic world doesn't ask this question, right? So whenever I go to Rome, one of the the, the thing I'm asked most to do, um, whether I'm you know meeting uh, with somebody in the Korea or I'm just out to dinner, is explain to them this thing that we seem to have in our political culture. The, uh, where, where it meets our ecclesial culture that insists on this kind of absolutism, because it it doesn't it doesn't exist in their minds, um, being being formed by a by a Catholic culture. It's so interesting because <laughs> there's so much discussion on voting in Catholics and how Catholics should vote, and we go through the discourse every four years about whether or not Catholics can vote for. A particular candidate but you know lost in a lot of this is are, are the candidates themselves i think and you know i'm sure that they're grappling with some of these questions too about how to be a good american how to be a good public official and how to be a good catholic you have worked with you know before your life as a jesuit you worked with politicians you you have you maintain relationships with them today uh, do you see them grappling with some of these issues and what are the what are the, the ways in which they try to understand that. Yeah, I think that they do. And if you go back to the an interview that I did with Joe Biden in, in, in 2015, I, I pointed out, you know, there have been times in your career, Mr. Then Vice President, when you have had to, you know, take a public policy position that was at odds with the U.S. bishops or with um, Catholic teaching as it was promulgated in the U.S. And I said, has that been difficult for you? And he said, yes. And he explained how. And I could... I mean, I think I'm a pretty good judge of these things. I could, I could clearly see that he was telling the truth. It was something that he had struggled with, and he struggled with it. Um, I think at a level at which a lot of politicians struggle with. Um, look, there are some, like in anything else, there are some folks in politics who are. We just met a few over the last four years who are, you know, pretty debased and narcissistic and only interested in, in their own selfish ends. But most people get into it uh, and stay in it because they care and they, they have values and they want to bring those values to public life. And there are places where they, where they conflict. But what's interesting to me, though, is that Catholics tend to 
struggle with that in a more overt, uh, public, even kind of tortured way than other people do. So, for example, to your point, you know, when, you know, the, the Supreme Court just had all these death penalty cases and then people went after Amy Coney Barrett and said, well, she, you know, she's allowing all these death penalty cases to go through, so she can't be, a, she's not really a Catholic, right? In the way that they had said about Biden, because he feels this way about abortion policy, he's not really a Catholic. And, you know, I mean, the Episcopal Church also is opposed to the death penalty, right? And n nobody asks an Episcopalian who's going before the Senate Judiciary Committee, will you be able to vote on these cases regarding the death penalty, given what the Episcopal Church teaches about it? <laughs> who's been asked that, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it should be, it should, it, that should tell us something, I think. The fact that that is unique, I think, is not unrelated to the fact that, that within global Catholicism, the United States is unique in feeling this kind of bifurcated existence. Yeah. Is the, so are you saying that we have this unique scrutiny because we're Catholics in a Protestant culture or there's something intrinsic about Catholicism that makes us more tortured? <laughs> I think that I think that the confusion comes among Catholics in thinking too much that the culture of the country and the culture of the church are more compatible than they are. Mm. Right? That's what I think that is where it comes. So it's not personal animus, right? I think on the part of um, you know, non-Catholics. And, you know, and I'm not I'm not trying to say that Protestantism is a bad thing either, right? <laughs> but it it but it's a it's an ecclesiology. It involves a, seri a series of ecclesiologies that then shape culture very differently, uh, particularly in the history of this country, than Catholicism does. Uh, and when we forget that, then we get into this square peg round hole situation where the rest of global Catholicism is like, why are you acting like that? And, and then within the uh, American public life, we have these sui generis experiences. We're asked this stuff in front of the Judiciary Committee and other people, other people aren't. But even more than that, we, as Catholics, think that we should be asked that stuff. And you should ask yourself whether we should be. It's interesting because at this point, which I think is a first, you've got the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is Roman Catholic. The Speaker of the House is a Roman Catholic. The President of the United States is a Roman Catholic. <laughs> we're basic, we're almost, you know, running the show to in, to in totality. Yeah. Uh what do you think is the mission of the church then as it relates to our political structures in that context? Because, you you know, I, I agree with you. I think the overwhelming political culture and culture at large is Protestant still in this country. But, you know, we are we are moving towards, I think, in everyday life, uh, a more secularized culture. Um, and on the face of it, the head of most branches of government right now uh, mm have an allegiance of some sorts to Rome. So how does the church fit into that? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, um, anybody who's been reading America for the last 10 years or so will say, oh, they have this textualist majority on the Supreme Court, and there's this kind of moderate Democrat in the White House. And 
um, there's a functioning pro-life movement. So America's <laughs> may, may have gotten exactly what it's wanted. <laughs> right? You're not you're not helping the Jesuits. The magazine uh, that is <laughs> lose the reputation <laughs> for pulling strings. <laughs> no, I know I'm. Uh, yeah, we, we... <laughs> I'm not. By the way, another way that Jesuits were there today was in that vice presidential oath mm-hmm. when they say without any purpose of evasion. That's the Jesuit clause. That, that's literally what that is. They're trying to make sure that you're not a secret. You mean ro- it was papist. included to make sure that? Yes. Oh. <laughs> to basically say you're not doing the Jesuitical thing of saying one thing, but mm. in your conscience reserving something else. But anyway. We love the Jesuitical so, thing. So, wait a minute, Zach, you asked a question. What was it? <laughs> well, just, you know, at this in this moment when we're all, when the Catholics are running the show. Oh, right. Um, what's the mission of the U.S. church as it relates to our political culture. Right. I don't necessarily know the answer to that question because I think it has several answers and they, they're highly contextualized. But let me say this. I know something about the method, I think. And that is you don't start with the political culture. You start with the church. And what is, what is fundamentally the function of the church, period. Right? And Pope Francis has reminded us of this in, in his interview with America, actually. He said, it's the first proclamation. Jesus Christ has saved you, right? Um, and in, in, in pointing that out, you know, um, he was, he's actually building on an insight of, of Benedict XVI, um, who said, you know, that the only credibility that the church has in the public square is its intrinsic truth. And that, it, and that it, intrinsic truth is that Jesus Christ has saved you. That our primary purpose is to proclaim that. And then they'll say, oh, well, that seems obvious. But what, you, but what do you think about X, Y, and Z? And I thought, if it seems obvious and you pass by it, then I think you've probably forgotten about the power of it. Like, what is the real radical power of that proclamation, right? So, in other words, that mission, that mandate, which comes to us from the Lord to proclaim uh, his resurrection and the gospel in light of that, should transform every part of our lives. And the more that we look as a church like one more actor organized for social action, indistinguishable from the other factions in our American public life, then we fail, right? Because we have to we have to bring what is uniquely Christian and unique to the gospel to this process. To a certain extent, the president was doing it today and talking about reconciliation in an indirect way. But, you know, our presence in the world, whether it's in politics or in our social life and our personal lives, is the, is the witness of sinners who have been forgiven. And so we, in all of that we do, whether it's political or social or personal, ought to be ever willing to forgive and reconcile in turn. And so the extent to which we are just taking part in this, this factional warfare among ideological partisans um, and then attempting to dress it up as Catholicism, we're a part of the problem. Begin with the church. Begin with the church. Then move out. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your your brother, Jesuit, uh, Father Leo Donovan, earlier in the show. And at the top of our show, we talked about our favorite uh, Leo stories because he is such a wonderful (laughs) Jesuit and just general person. So we wanted to get a Leo story from you if you have one. 
Oh, I have a great one. First of all, I should say he did a great job. Um, mm-hmm. He was amazing. I wasn't going to ask you to grade him, but <laughs> okay. I thought he did a great job. I thought that was a great. I, I thought it was a beautiful prayer, uh, and the pieces of our history and the, the Catholicism that he was able to bring together in that tapestry of a prayer. It was really beautiful. Um, my story is a little more down to earth. So, I mean, I like Cape Codders. I think y- you all have a Cape Codder too, right? Vodka and cranberry juice. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I'm yes. from Cape Cod. <laughs> now, if you just have, um, by the way, if you just have vodka and club soda and a splash of cranberry, that's called a Rose Kennedy, mother of the first Catholic president. Ah, just a little nice. tidbit there. Don't Wikipedia. That actually sounds listening. even better. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> so my favorite Leo story, is he doesn't like Cape Codders. He likes martinis. Uh, and he likes it with a particular kind of gin. And, um, and he's a master. To watch him make a martini is... You know, like watching, um, you know, Picasso paint. <laughs> <laughs> I was behind Leo, Leo uh, at a at a, at a bar at a reception, and um, and he went up and he said, "I would like a martini straight up with a twist." And the bartender said, "Do you want a gin martini or a vodka martini?" And he said, "I asked for a martini, which by definition is made with gin." And the bartender said, well, do you like vodka martinis? And Leo said, do you like square circles? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. God love Leo. Yeah. He's a wonderful human being. (laughs) He's he's a wonderful human being and gave a wonderful invocation today. Um, Historic day, really, for the church, for the Jesuits, for this country, and couldn't have... uh, broken it down with anyone better than yourself, Father Malone. So thank you for joining us today. We do have one final question for you, yeah. and I think you know it's coming. All right. Uh, if you could canonize one person, I believe this is your third person now, but uh, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? The third... Oh, right, because you asked me this before, and I, I think I said Sergeant Shriver, didn't I? Yeah. Yes, Sergeant Schreiber. Who, interestingly yep. enough, did. was that vice presidential, the last pro-life Democrat to run on a national ticket. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, it would be Fred Rogers. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, now he's enjoying a kind of renaissance and uh, culture, and his and and his beautiful wife just passed away I, last week. Um, but he's been long been a hero of mine, um, the Reverend Fred Rogers, Mister Rogers, he of neighborhood fame. Um, I just think. Yeah, talk about a guy who began with his Christianity, and 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 let it touch everything that he touched, but he never had to draw attention to that fact. Never had to do that because he was that sure and certain in his faith, and um, and he had it. One of the most wonderful things that I ever read about him was the, this quote that he had from an old teacher of his: "The only thing that evil." cannot stand is forgiveness Mm. that's it otherwise evil overpowers everything else and i thought now that is the witness of a christian in the public square right there amen to that and one that we need yeah luckily fred rogers record high (laughs) approval rating right so Yes, He's, exactly. That is soaring. Beloved, a national treasure. I mean, if you saw him, you, you know, yeah. if you, 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 he has these YouTube videos and you watch them and there'll be thousands of comments 
and not one of them is negative. Who else can do that? Not even Pope Francis can do that. We see what people say about him on our webpage. <laughs> not even you. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> certainly not me. No. <laughs> no. And I, this is, that, that's a great candidate for canonization, but it also puts you, I think, in one, uh, this might be not the only way, but one of the only ways, things you have in common with the comedian Sarah Silverman. Uh, because that is who she canonized on this show as well. So uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yes. So Fred Rogers appeals to all. We'd ask you uh, what you want to plug right now, but we know the answer is you want people to subscribe to the finest Catholic publication in publishing today. Absolutely. Is that correct? <laughs> Absolutely. Which is America, for the record. <laughs> John Wynn founded this magazine in 1909, and he asked people for $5 a year. It was a steal then, and it still is at $5 a month. Um, and we still need as many people to subscribe as possible because, you know, we got to make sure that we're able to support the work of you wonderful people uh, on this staff, uh, that you have the resources you need to do that voodoo you do so well. So please do and with subscribe. a Catholic pre- yeah, with a Catholic president, we have our work cut out for us. There'll be no lack of stories Look, to cover. You got, you got a Catholic Supreme Court. You got a Jesuit Pope. You got a J- Catholic president. I mean, you got a Catholic Speaker of the House. You better be reading America, or you're not. <laughs> yeah, you're out. You're out. You're on yeah. the outs. You're just not going to have what you need to navigate this world. I can objectively say I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show again. You're welcome. Uh, we really appreciate it. Good to see. You. I'll see you again in what another. Year? 14 months? Hopefully. Hopefully we'll be back <laughs> in I think that so. studio. Yeah, that sounds you. about right. Okay. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a big thank you to the new members of our Patreon community, which includes Maureen Sweeney, Roz, Eli Bueno, Maggie Lee, and Ainsley O'Brien. Yeah, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you want to be like them, you can. There are two ways to do it. First, you can subscribe to americamagazine.org. That's where Ashley and I work, if you hadn't heard. And that's a great way to support the show. And it will also get you unlimited access to everything America publishes. But if you want all that and more, and there you can head to patreon.com slash America Media to get unlimited access to americamagazine.org and additional Jesuitical swag and behind-the-scenes look. So hit up patreon.com slash americamedia. 
And now it's time for some Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives and where it was harder to find God. What do you have this week, Zach? Well, I joked with Father Eric that there were only going to be desolations until the pandemic was (laughs) over, Uh, but he promptly reminded me that that's up to the spirit and not me. Um, And I did, when I was talking to him, I thought I had a desolation sort of building off last week's where it's just been like really hard to do anything and it just feels kind of blah. Um, but one of, you know, <laughs> Father Eric's recommendations were not super spiritual as much as they were just n- normal routine things. You know, like he's like, make sure that you're praying and exercising and taking care of yourself as a, as an embodied human. Um, because in periods of desolation, it can feel really easy to just sink into the couch after staring at a computer screen all day and do nothing. And I... Realized that I wasn't going to make a million changes in my life in a week. And so I picked one thing that I could control or at least have some agency over. And I I, I decided to wake up early at a certain time every day last week. And that was really great. It, you know, last week I was feeling like I couldn't control anything. And this week, waking up at a certain time reminded Mm -hmm. me that, you know, I might not be able to control things but i it, it it's not true that i don't have agency so that was in talking to him because i was really struggling with like uh, it feels like i have control but i know control is a bad thing so that's not the word i want to use and father eric's like it sounds like you're talking about agency um so got some jesuit wisdom and i did so that was i don't know if it's a it's a consolation but it's certainly a movement towards consolation whereas like last week prayer felt practically impossible yeah and this week, it at least feels possible. And that's kind of a moment worth recognizing, at least in Eric's mind and I guess my own too. Yeah, I'm very impressed that you're waking up early. I still find that <laughs> nearly impossible. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's, it's early for me. I'm sure it's probably just when you wake up. I won't even, I won't share what time it is here, but. All right. <laughs> what do you got this week, Ashley? Uh, I also have a consolation. Uh I feel like on my call with Eric, I felt like this need to be like, it's just a small one. Like I had to like qualify it. It's like, it's not a big deal. <laughs> but like there was a moment where I felt grace. Um, but no, so I went to mass and uh, our normal parish, St. Boniface. And I walk in and our coworker, brother Joe Hoover, a Jesuit who we work with, is just like sitting in the pews. Um, and he doesn't usually go there. And I haven't seen him since you know, February or March of last year. And the moment I see him, I'm just like overjoyed that like this person who has just been kind of a a person on my computer screen is literally just like right in front of me. And, you know, I can't hug him, which is very hard, but he's there. And I, it was just like this taste of what's to come. I had very much been like, I don't know, the first couple weeks of January gave me like little reason to feel like hope for the coming year. um, And that things will at some point if not go back to normal, be different than they are right now. Um, and so there's just like unexpected grace of seeing um, seeing this coworker felt just like the first fruits of what's to come. And it gave me like the little like boost of, of hope I was sorely needing at that moment. Um, so shout out to Joe Hoover. <laughs> it was great to see you. I hope I can be back in the office with you and all my other colleagues soon. Um, but I'm just holding on to that to that unexpected moment of of joy at seeing seeing another person as like okay there's there's hope for more of this to come at some point. 
Yeah, no, it's hard. You, <laughs> there are so many reasons to not be hopeful. And it, one of the things I've struggling with is, you know, if you feel hope, just let it, just let it happen. Right. Like yeah. you don't have to qualify it. So good on you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Get us out of here. Okay. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.